Hello and welcome to yet another episode of Sipping Science. I'm your host Sumit as always and I'm joined here by my co-host Lorena. Today we bring you a very exciting episode after which I'm sure you'll be flashing a big bright and beautiful smile to anyone around you or to yourself because you know you deserve it but also because the focus of our podcast today is teeth. We have here with us today two archaeologists as well as anthropologists who use teeth to figure out the lives of people and how they moved and migrated between different lands thousands of years ago so they have lots of fascinating stories to tell that i'm excited to hear about so let's start off with my friend lorena introducing the speakers our guests today are dr lexi o'donnell who earned her PhD just last year from the University of New Mexico and is now a visiting assistant professor at the University of Mississippi. Her work is on migration in pre-Spanish New Mexico and its impacts on the health of the population. And we also have Dr. Caroline Freiwald, who earned her PhD in 2011 at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She is now an associate professor also at the University of Mississippi. Her research focuses on reconstructing migration patterns, specifically those in ancient Latin America. Thanks, Lorena. Now let's bite straight into what glues your research together, which is not gum, but teeth. Now, I don't usually think about teeth unless one of them really starts hurting. So I'm really interested in knowing what makes them important for archaeological research and what is it that you study about them. Well, I'll start and then let Lexi take it from there, but teeth are important for what they can tell us both inside and out. So what I look at is the chemical composition of teeth, which differs according to people's habits, where they live, what type of diet they have, and I guess I'll cheat a little bit, and sometimes what builds up on outside of the teeth because that same information can be captured in your dental calculus, including the DNA of the dental microbiome or the diseases you had and the food that you were eating. And all of this can help us reconstruct past life ways. Another thing that's really cool about teeth, especially for people who study skeletons, is that your teeth can tell um, us almost exactly the same things as your skeleton, with some uh, exceptions. But for example, uh, we could look at your baby teeth and we can estimate uh, a person's age and we can uh, measure your teeth and we can get an idea about stress or we can look at the surface of your teeth. And if you were really sick, uh, you can develop these lines in your teeth called enamel hypoplasias. And so a lot of things that we can kind of gather from the skeleton, because we also estimate age in the skeleton, we can estimate if you were sick or had a disease from your skeleton, we can do with teeth. And teeth are more durable than the skeleton. Yeah, and so that's a really important thing for archeologists because we're often studying populations that can be between 50 and 5,000 years old. And 50,000 years old too, the teeth preserve. And so those are often really good um, ways to capture information about people's lives. I always say from birth to burial because the enamel stays from the time you're a baby. And, but the dentin and the rest of the tooth continue to remodel as you age. So DNA is sort of what everybody considers to be the gold standard. You can tell all sorts of information, but it's expensive, hard to get, and so there are lots of other things that we can find out by using the different parts of the teeth to see if people's lives were different or the same as ours today. 
That's absolutely fascinating. Now, Lexi, you've done research in New Mexico. Tell us about the people you've studied there and what their teeth tell us about their lives. Uh, so I'm going to talk about a group of people called the Gaina. So the Gaina lived in what's called the Northern Rio Grande region of Northern New Mexico between uh, 8100 to about 81275 or 1300. They're kind of thought of as a, or historically portrayed anyways, as a really enigmatic group. They're isolated or portrayed as isolated from all other people in kind of surrounding areas. So there's a couple reasons why they're portrayed as isolated. And one is that artifacts that are made by the Gaina just aren't found elsewhere in the Southwest. And there aren't that many artifacts or like things like pots and bowls from other places found at Gaina sites. So that indicates that they're not trading things they made with other people, and they're not taking things that other groups made. Additionally, uh, Gaina sites are in defensive locations. So they're in what's called cliff houses. So you can imagine your house is built in a cliff. Um, if you see bad guys coming, you can uh, pull up a ladder and nobody's gonna be able to get in there and you can just kind of uh, laugh at them or whatever. Uh, as they're trying to get at you. Um, there are also stone towers at the Gaina site, so these are really interesting. Uh, they are not really found anywhere else in the southwest that I know of. Uh, they're actually stone towers, they're pretty tall, and they are probably used or were probably used to message or kind of inform other people that uh, like uh, maybe they see somebody coming so they can see down a hill or whatever in this tower. And the other thing about towers is that they're connected through a series of underground tunnels. So maybe you see something happening in your tower and you can run down and go through the tunnel and go to the next tower. Uh, so there's really interesting things about the Gaina. Other evidence that comes from the archaeological record indicates that the Gaina people also faced a really great amount of violence and turmoil. So some of their sites show evidence for burning uh, there are murals that have been found kind of painted on walls and murals are burnt, which indicates that the house was burnt after the mural was painted. Um, human remains from the Gaina area show great amounts of interpersonal violence, which means somebody else called, caused violence to them. Uh, the Gaina have one of the highest documented uh, violence rates of anywhere else in the South, anywhere in the Southwest. Some Gaina sites have also been interpreted as massacre sites with multiple victims. So Gaina are isolated. They um, have defensive sites, and some of them have been maybe treated not so nicely by possibly their neighbors. In addition to all the archaeological evidence that we have, we also have stories about the Gaina from people who live nearby. And those stories indicate that the Gaina are ostracized for some reason. So it's possible that they're witches. There are other possibilities that I'll tell you about too. But one story goes, that the Jemez, which is a group of people that live really close to the Gaina, they actually uh, were out hunting and they kind of run into a group of Gaina people and the Gaina kill the Jemez people. And in return, the Jemez, uh, they say that they killed all of these Gaina in uh, basically to get them back. But also that's how they explain the disappearance of the Gaina from their homeland, which is what I'm interested in. So the Gaina abandoned their homes right around AD 1300. So there's a big drought when the Gaina move. Uh, there are also migrants from Mesa Verde, which is in Colorado, moving possibly through the Gaina district. We know the Gaina 
are facing some kind of negative social stuff because they have all of that violence that we see and evidence for really defensive locations. So I think that the Gaina definitely leave that area. I doubt that they all died, uh, but it's a really interesting thing that kind of the, the stories about them would indicate that they're also gone. So everybody recognizes that the Gaina left. So I'm really interested in where the Gaina went. And I have an idea of why, but I don't know where. So to address that idea, a co-author and I actually looked at um, a bunch of teeth from Gaina and other areas, and we constructed some hypotheses to test where they maybe went. So when you look at teeth to talk about migration, uh, I look at the bumps and grooves on your teeth. So if you run your tongue over your teeth in your mouth, you're going to feel a bunch of different kind of uh, valleys. You're going to feel some pokey bits. Those are your cusps. And all of those things that you can feel on your teeth are things I can look at. And with enough teeth, we can estimate somebody's ancestry or where they're from. So um, I usually look at about 70 dental traits. So each tooth kind of tells a little tale. So I looked at all those teeth and then my co-author and I came up with a few hypotheses about where the Gaina went. So our first one is we said, the Gaina might have moved to the Jemez area, which seems really silly after I told you that the Jemez are kind of don't like the Gaina. Um, but archaeologists have suggested that maybe the Gaina did go to the Jemez area because we see some, they're kind of tenuous uh, links between things like architecture and the Gaina and the Jemez. Um, I would disagree, but I will test the hypothesis anyways. I also thought that maybe the Gaina moved elsewhere. So one of the reasons that you might move is because you're experiencing violence or a climatic downturn. So you leave your home and you go somewhere else. Um, so maybe they went south to around Albuquerque, New Mexico, or maybe they leave New Mexico entirely and they go to Arizona or Mexico. When I look to see how groups are related, the Gaina look most like groups that are not the Jemez. So the Gaina are not similar to the Hamas. So when people come together, we exchange genes, um, not your pants, but your genes. And uh, they aren't exchanging genes with these people that they're really close to, which supports evidence for isolation. It also supports the stories, which would say that there's some kind of negative relationship. The people that the Gaina look most close to are actually people in Albuquerque. Um, and New Mexico. So that's really interesting because Albuquerque at that time is um, not very populated with people. And the Gaina may represent kind of a first wave of movement into this area that's called the Middle Rio Grande. And right around 81300, what we see happening around Albuquerque, a bunch of really big uh, cities and villages start kind of popping up and we start seeing lots of people moving in. So what I think happened is that the Gaina left to escape negative conditions where they were from. They shed their kind of isolated skin and they assimilated with people around them and kind of joined the greater Pueblo world. Do you find any patterns when it comes to dental hygiene practices in those times? So um, specifically with the Southwest, uh, what's really interesting, I'm going to talk first about, we see a lot of dental caries, so that's a cavity. So um, when you get a cavity in your mouth, we call them caries, and uh, that's a single or plural. So caries can tell us a little bit about diet, um, 
if you have a lot of them, sometimes it's just unluck because your uh, mouth microbiome can just cause you to get them. But it also can indicate that maybe you're eating squishier foods and not getting them out. I will say that even if we don't have evidence for it, you know, every uh, group of people probably has something that they're doing to try to clean their teeth. So uh, you might be like picking at your tooth with a toothpick and you can, I'm, uh, I can assure you that other people in the past were doing that too. But what's really interesting is that there are a couple papers and one is actually from the Southwest. So it's from uh, Colorado and I think they wrote it in I don't know, 1998, but it's by a person named Tim White and uh, some colleagues. And they actually looked at this tooth and it has a pit in it and the pit is like worn on the sides. So it looks like they were actually drilling a dental caries out for somebody. So that's evidence of not only dental hygiene, but dent dentistry. And so they think that it was drilled before the person's death to kind of help deal with them having an abscess, which can happen if you have caries going a little bit too long and abscesses are very uncomfortable. And there are other studies that show the same kind of thing happening, but in places in Europe and a really, really long time ago, like 7,000 to 9,000 years ago, as opposed to the Utah site, which was about a thousand years ago. So there's all kinds of, I think, evidence and hints at dental hygiene in the past. And probably the most neat is that people were trying to drill their teeth to deal with cavities. We can't forget about how teeth can make us more beautiful because cultures around the world also drilled into their teeth to insert bits of jade, quartz, hematite. They filed their teeth, notched them, flattened them and made all sorts of different shapes. I guess in the same way we might use grills or use whitener and have braces. So we can see something about what cultural standards of beauty were and how people were signaling when they smiled at each other. Right, let's move on to Carolyn's story and tell us where your research takes you. We'll go a little bit farther south, but about the same time period from what Lexi was talking about and go to Mexico City, which is best known historically for the place where the Aztecs lived. And teeth can tell us the story about migration, but so can tales and the pictures that they left behind. We know that they said they came to Mexico City or the Valley of Mexico as it was known then um, after traveling 200 years from a place called Aztlan. And by the 1300s, they were settled there. And if you go to Mexico City today, you can still see their capital city of Tenochtitlan. Um, museums are there and you can visit them and see what their lives were like. But they weren't the only ones in the valley because when they arrived, there were other groups living there. And about 20 years ago, one of my professors, Doug Price from the University of Wisconsin at Madison, was trying to understand who all these other people were and sampled some teeth from the American Museum of Natural History from two places. And these names might not sound familiar, but there's a place called Mazapan and Tlalnepantla. And these are northeast and northwest of the area where Tenochtitlan was. So other communities who were maybe Aztec interacting with the Aztec. But in order to understand a little bit more about them, we have to go back in time 100 years. Archaeology projects can take a long time, and we keep learning more from collections that people have. But Mazapan, the teeth that were excavated there and some of the materials, came from excavations in the 1930s. A man named George Vaillant went, and he conducted excavations and found some burials and collected the data, and we know that that people were living in the ruins of a city that had been built 500 years earlier. 
Sanle Patla, however, was a little bit harder to figure out because more than 100 years ago, in the late 1800s, a Norwegian named Carl Lumholtz was traveling all the way from northern Mexico, not too far south from the Pecos area, and he spent five years on what might have been one of the longest road trips in history, trying to understand and learn about the native peoples or the indigenous populations in Mexico. He documented their lives, what they ate. Um, he even collected things like raincoats. And we think that he might have worked with one of his acquaintances around 1899 and done some excavations at a city called Planlepantla. And in order to locate this ancient city, they reported that there was a, a site just 1.4 miles from the border of Mexico City. Well, the border of Mexico City in 1900 was much different than today, but luckily the church from that area was still on the map, and so we were able to locate where those people were living and look at the data. And what I was trying to do is understand, we know about the Aztec migrations, but what about these other people? So we looked inside the teeth. Now, people's bones and teeth are made of the same basic building blocks, calcium, oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, the same things that we're, they're made of, of calcium. But the way that we live, where we get our food, what types of food we eat, they can affect the different chemical compositions. And not just with the different elements, but with the different forms of those elements or isotopes. And so people living on different types of soils may have teeth that look very different from people living elsewhere. And when we looked at the teeth from Mazapan and Tlalnepantla, we did not see evidence for very much migration. There were a couple people who clearly grew up in a different area than the rest of the people who were buried at the sites, but we didn't see any big migrations from other places. So these are mostly local populations, probably living around the big lake and you know, collecting and eating their foods nearby. But when I actually looked at the diet, which is another type of information you can get from teeth, these people living less than an hour apart had almost completely different diets. So we started to think about what types of food they might be eating because the different elements, carbon and nitrogen, their forms will vary if people, for example, eat vegetables versus meat, or if they're eating foods like bread versus tortillas, which come from maize, which is actually a tropical grass. And so it looked like the people in Tlalnepantla were eating a lot less maize or foods like that than the people not far away at Mazapan. And they may not have been living there at the exact same time, but it was just a few generations apart. So we started to look a little bit at, well, what were people's lives like? What types of foods were they eating in 1200 and 1300 AD? And so in this area, we do have codices or ancient books written in the 16th century in Nahuatl, the native language, but sometimes in Spanish, because the Spanish were interested in documenting the lives of the people who were there when they arrived. And so we know people were eating things like tamales. So if you think of these foods, these are foods you can thank the Aztecs and other Mesoamerican peoples for, but also turkey, chili peppers, salt, tomatoes, all the types of foods that they would have been eating at the time, and also other types of maize. So these were common foods that people had, but they also had some foods that you might not find too appetizing today. We have depictions and pictures of them eating things like lake shrimp, water bugs. They had tamales that were made from frogs, frogs with maize, axolotl, which are actually larva salamanders. And we have pictures of them sort of scraping the top of the lake to get larva so that they could make tasty tamales out of these. So it looks like 
people living in these different cities were relying on different types of foods. Maybe people closer to the lake got to snack on amphibians and ashlotl a little bit more than the others. But in sum, we can really find out a lot about teeth. If they could talk, they can tell us where people went, where they came from. They can tell us what people's lives were like and a little bit about their favorite foods. And so Lexi's talked about one way to do this, and I've talked about another. And it, it's something to think about the next time you show your teeth when you smile and think about the tales they can tell. How much time will a migrant need to stay in a specific location uh, so as to establish a signature chemistry? And can this approach be applied to current day migrations? Well, I'll take the second part first because people are very interested in using this type of thing, the chemical composition of your bones and teeth to identify missing persons or use these in modern forensic cases. So the problem for the modern populations are that we eat so much imported food, even the water, the bottled water we drink, is coming from someplace else. And if your bones and teeth are to track you to a certain location, um, they'll constantly be remodeling. So whatever food you're eating and whatever you're drinking will affect the chemical composition. So there are ways to try and use this in forensic cases. Um, but in general, we're assuming that people in the past probably ate more local foods than we do today. Um, the difference between the teeth and the bones is that with the tooth enamel, once that enamel forms, and generally that occurs during infancy, all the way up until the wisdom tooth enamel forms right before adolescence, that can be compared to bones. So bones are constantly remodeling, and they'll always reflect the signature of you where you are over the past five to ten years or so. So it's always going to be an average of the places people were living, but we try and take that into an account when we estimate you know, whether someone's local or not local, or try and understand their migration patterns. Can you tell us more about the reasons for migration? So uh, I guess where I work, I think the most common thing that I hear in the Southwest, or when you're looking into why people migrate, the most common like explanation is usually that the climate, like climatic downturn, um, or the environment's bad, or there's a drought, but there's also other things too, like, and we can kind of make, I think, parallels between today and the past if we look maybe not so much at climate, but at social conditions. So like when I talked about the Gaina, the Gaina appear to have been experiencing a great deal of social unrest. Um, it's possible that the Gaina actually had come into contact with migrants from Mesa Verde and that coming into contact with different people maybe caused some of the unrest or upheaval that we see evidence for. Um, there are a couple people that say that. Um, I think for sure, if you're experiencing violence, whoever it's coming from, it doesn't really matter. You might want to leave just to make your life better. And so if you can kind of travel elsewhere and escape violence or whatever is happening that's really negative, I think that um, migration is really like a positive change for a lot of people in that respect. And I, I think those types of questions, the large-scale migration, have always caught not just archaeologists, but people's attention. You know, why do communities move? But we can look at it on a smaller scale. The more we study, and in the Maya area, in, in Mesoamerica, where I work, which stretches all the way from Mexico into Honduras, we now have hundreds of data points. People have sampled the teeth from hundreds of individuals who lived over the past several thousand years. 
and we seem to see that people were moving on a fairly regular basis. It wasn't necessarily as a reaction to climate change or warfare, but maybe for the same reasons we do today, to find a better place to live, to get married, maybe because they just want to try something new. So in that way, we can see that migration has been, is something that is occurring on an ongoing basis, and I consider it to be part of what makes us human. I think we can all agree that that was a fantastic note to end on. Thank you, Carolyn and Lexi, for joining us and telling us all these fascinating stories. And thank you to the audience for tuning in for yet another episode of Sip in Science. Stay tuned for information about our upcoming events and cafes. The best way to get updates is to follow us on social media. We have a page on Facebook. We also have an Instagram account. Our handle is called Sippin Science, which is the name of the podcast with an underscore in between Sippin and Science. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at the rate UM Science Cafe. Uh, we also have our website, which is at phy.olmis.edu slash Oxford Science Cafe. The Oxford Science Cafe features monthly public talks and conversations about science for the local community here in Oxford, Mississippi. It's sponsored by the University of Mississippi Office of the Provost, the Department of Physics and Astronomy, and UM Women in Physics. Thanks a lot for listening. See you next time.